This is Pablo Escobar, Escape from la Catedral. The tapes you are about to hear have been translated and dramatized by voice actors. How is it going? Who's speaking? Hello, it's Pablo Escobar from Medellín. Pablo Escobar is desperate. He's been hunted by the Colombian authorities, the DEA, the CIA, and worst of all, Los Pepes, a fearsome group of enemies who have been brutally killing anyone with a connection to Pablo Escobar. Get me the agenda because that's where I have my, my, my home phone number. No, Juan? Hello, Juan, how are you doing? Yes. Look, Juan, I, I have Mr. Pablo Escobar here on the other line. He wants to speak to you. Okay. Great, I'll connect the calls. Mr. Pablo Escobar, I leave you on the line with our news director, Juan Gosain. I've made the connection. You can speak. What? Hello? We, we, we need the connection to improve. Can, can we check it? It's noisy. I can hear you better now. I can hear you. I can hear you. Escobar is anxiously trying to get his family out of the country. Los Pepes had made it clear that they will kill them all if they find them. Meanwhile, the Colombian government is doing everything in its power to keep Escobar family in Colombia. They are using them as bait. My name is Jorge Ramos. I am the nightly news anchor for Univision News. I have covered the drug trade all over Latin America for over 30 years. When I was approached to do this podcast, I had to say yes, because it involved listening to a mysterious set of 35 tapes that were sent to a production company in Mexico called Detective. The package simply read, Escobar Tapes. Escobar Escobar begins to feel that his family is in danger, his wife, his children. And he gets the Germans to welcome them, not to give them asylum, but to receive them and send them to a third country. It didn't work out. That's Cesar Gaviria, president of Colombia at the time. He spoke to the German government and asked them to send Escobar's family back to Colombia. The Colombian government now had the family under close watch. They knew where they were at all times and monitored all of their communications. Escobar, on the other hand, was still proving to be quite elusive. Here's DEA agent Joe Tuft. He never spoke on his phone from one location. And the reason he knew that we were using directional finding equipment is because he had people paid off in the police. And, and we had provided the equipment to the police. And we weren't the only country that provided. I mean, we, we provided a, probably 50 times more than the other governments. So Escobar knew we were using this and he knew he was probably told by the police, too, that as long as you're moving, we're not going to be able to find you. We're not going to be able to locate you. The way that equipment works is basically there are three um, uh, locations where this, where the conversation hits the antennas or something, and they kind of converge. And when all three converge, that's where you're at. But if you're moving, that thing's all over the place. It's very difficult. The process that Joe Toff is describing here is called triangulation. 
When Pablo would make a call to a phone that was being monitored, they could pinpoint the signal to get an approximate location. The government was pinning all of its hope on this technology to locate Escobar. Here's President Gaviria again. Really, what they were relying on were these triangulation devices. If the call lasts for three minutes, they can pin the exact location of whoever is calling. With few allies left to help him, Escobar was losing his grip. His only goal at this point was to get his family to safety. But then, he made a big mistake. The call was long, not short. And that's how they got him. That's how we found where Escobar was. And the search block moved quickly to try to catch him or kill him. The order was handed down. They wanted Escobar alive or dead. The main charge with finding Escobar were known as el bloque de búsqueda, or the search block. They had been chasing the capo for years. I gave the search block that responsibility. It was well-formed, dedicated exclusively for this mission. Hugo Aguilar was one of the first members of this elite force. I was in the Special Operations Command, and I trained all these people. Hugo Aguilar spoke to us from prison. He's currently serving a nine-year sentence for ties to illegal paramilitary groups. But back in the early 90s, he was in the Special Operations Command of the search block. It was a training of special operations, a fight against drug trafficking, and especially also because since Pablo Escobar or the cartel had the support of the guerrillas, he had the support of the paramilitaries, so training was needed in the urban war and also in the rural war. The group was also trained in electronic surveillance, in particular, the process of triangulation. The most important thing was the support of the international agencies, and that support especially had to be financial, technical, and also in some intelligence methods that they use especially in the electronic part for triangulation and scanning. But even though Escobar was nearing the end of his rope, he still had a few tricks up his sleeve. When he penetrated the search block, which was through two officers, a corporal and a police assistant. And that's why there were many operations that we failed. President Gaviria ordered the replacement of the entire search block because of so much failure in the operations that had never turned out. To counter Escobar's effort at corrupting more men in the group, they decided to pay a little more. And the other thing is that they had to have some benefits, that they were given an extra salary, as well as that they be paid their per diems every time they came, their tickets, because the same salary that the policeman had was not enough to assume those expenses, knowing that they could not take their family to Medellin because they would be killed. President Gaviria. Escobar proved to be a formidable escape artist. He would move quickly, mislead the Colombian and American authorities. He could do so many things. He had so much control over his clandestine network. Hugo Aguilar recalls when Pablo Escobar began contacting his family while they were under surveillance. 
cuando se trajo para las residencias Tequendama. When it was brought to the Tequendama residences, and there in the residence where the family was going to be located, sensors, microphones, all the technical part that the DEA helped us in, who were the most expert and obviously. Then comes the first communication. When he speaks, very little. Those were second. The lieutenant who handles the radio triangulates it and ends up in the Avenida Colombia in Medellín, where Éxito Colombia was, by that avenue. And we triangulated them, and I walked the signal. We went out like 40 men in plain clothes, in cars, and told us more or less the point where it was. We got there. I parked, and the policeman came and said, Chief, boss, you see that taxi that was there in front of a nightclub? I said, yes, I'm watching. I have it in sight. He says, that's Pablo Escobar, because according to the latest information, he's fat and he's keeping a beard. Escobar's appearance, much like his standing as a powerful drug lord, had diminished greatly. But in his mind, he still owned Medellín. I said, if I see him, I buy a Coke. A lady there who has a traveling kiosk and an empanada. The boy said, boss, why don't we do the operation? I said, no, we can't improvise. We don't have security. And then I told him, take the number of the plates of the car, the number and the name of the taxi company, and no more. The team didn't want to risk open violence in the middle of the street. They wanted to apprehend Escobar in a more secure location. And they had to be sure it was him. Then came another short communication where Pablo Escobar, Pablo Escobar's son, were talking. He asked him if he would answer a questionnaire of a journalist. He said yes, and put an exact date and time, which was December 2nd of 93, at 2 p.m. So we, we already knew exactly the day he was going to speak, and it was longer because he was going to answer a questionnaire. The interview was for the weekly magazine Semana. Escobar wanted to tell the country that the government was using his family as a bait to capture him. It was the opportunity that Hugo Aguilar and the search block had been waiting for. So I organized the operation well. I selected my people. I didn't use the Navy or the DAS or the Army, only policemen. I presented the operation project to the commander of the block. He said, I am not able to authorize that. Why? Because it can be a failure. Is that 23 men before a monster? That man is very armed. You know what a man entrenched with a Galil rifle is? He asked me that question. Then I said, boss, if we don't catch that guy, we don't discharge him. He's going to finish us off. Aguilar was denied, so he had to go a little higher up the chain of command. I spoke with President Gaviria. I presented him with the operation. He said, I have to go and talk to the minister. And at last there was a meeting and I explained the operation. Then they said, ready, we authorize you. I remember so much that General Gomez Padilla scolded me, came and said, if you fail, I discharge you from the police. Then I said, my general, what if I succeed? What would you give me? He was furious. He was enraged when I asked him what he would give me. Then he told me to beware of sarcasm and irony, and I was silent. It was time for Hugo Aguilar and his men to finally capture Pablo Escobar. On the morning of December 2nd, we had a little breakfast. I told the DEA to give me some money. I left with all my 23 men with an open letter for them to buy what they wanted for their family, to buy them t-shirts, jeans, whatever was the fashion of the time, and each one I also bought. We made some boxes. It was newly created, 
and each one of them put up his delivery and wrote a letter to the family saying goodbye, that it was very possible that we would not come out alive. Around 12, I told them, none of us will have lunch. And I gave each one one lomotil pill. And that was for what? To avoid. Because stress generates diarrhea, stomach disease, and if you have lunch, even worse. We had already decided that we were going in civilian clothes. We had organized two 350 trucks with people from the uniform search block. And we put on double plate and bulletproof vest. We selected the Pietro Beretta pistol. We selected rifles, some submachine guns, another 555 R15 rifles. We were there with nervousness. When at two, he started talking. Hugo Martinez Poveda, commander of the search block, was monitoring the radio signal, tracking Escobar's location, and guiding Aguilar. Lieutenant Martinez tells me, Boss, boss, he started talking. Then I told him, take the vehicle out of the parking lot and follow the signal. And we had another vehicle, because in the other vehicle, where the radio was, we only had the driver and the lieutenant, who was the only one who knew how to handle the radio, and the vehicle with three other men who were following him in a car for safety. Then he came out, and I said, follow him. This is where Escobar made his fatal mistake. He lingered on the call a little too long. Hugo Aguilar and his men were getting closer and closer to their target. And all of a sudden he says, Boss, I have it, I have it. It's here in such an address. Next door there is a construction. With these verbatim words, I told him, Shoot everything that moves. I'll take the consequences. Shoot him. I answer. I'll answer for it. We got off. The lieutenant said, there he is talking. Then next door was a construction of a house. And they were emptying the cement pad for him. Then I asked, and I said, who is the master and who is the engineer? He said, me. I said, throw yourself on the floor, because we're going to do an operation against Pablo Escobar. There were people who threw themselves on top of the cement that they were watering there on the pad. How did it help us? They left the mixer on. There was a lieutenant who was very skilled to break doors. When I made the sign that the assault group entered, it turns out that they cowered, expanded, hid, and I was left alone with the lieutenant and agent Barragan. It gave us a fear. My hands fell asleep. We looked at each other, and as I no longer saw the reaction group of penetration, because I told them, let's go, and then I entered first, and we heard him speaking. 18. Escobar was in the middle of the phone call, that would cost him dearly. He kept talking. He didn't flinch anything about knocking on the door or anything. When he sees me and says, something's happening here, and boom, he threw the phone and pulled out the gun. He took out a gun and bam, bam, he made like four shots. Then I crouched down, and of course I was carrying the rifle, and as I crouched, boom, I shot the rifle hard. And the blast went into the ceiling. I lost it. Of course, it saves us that the roof was thatch. If it had been cement, we would have killed ourselves. We wanted to catch him alive, and he came back and he shot me again. Then there, I only pointed at him and pointed to his heart on this side. That is to say that I shot him in the heart. And the lieutenant above me shot him, hit him, and it came out in one ear and the guy fell. When the roof fell in, and that shooting began, 
we barricaded ourselves there on the wall and where he was, next to the hole and everything stuck to the wall. I said, cease fire. He's impacted. For me, he's already dead. He's impacted. Cease fire. You don't have a firing line. You're hitting the wall where we're entrenched. I ordered a ceasefire. There was a silence. I looked up like that and saw him over the roof. So I told him, I'm going to jump. I approached him and he had stayed there. One gun could be seen here. Then I approached him. I took the gun away from him with my foot. I said, this is Pablo Escobar. I took the radio. Long live Colombia. Pablo Escobar, mi coronel, died. And that is how Pablo Escobar, the man, came to an end, and Pablo Escobar, the myth, was born. And like all myths, the facts matter less than the narrative. Over time, what people remember can morph into something else. And oftentimes, facts are disputed. For example, Pablo Escobar's sister, Luz Maria, has a different take on his death. The official report said one thing, but what we saw in the amphitheater was something else. Me, my mom, and my sisters. We came to the conclusion that Pablo killed himself. He would never let himself be taken alive by the police. Actually, there was one person who saw everything that happened on that roof, but he never testified. Regardless of how it went down, his body was laying there, cold and dead. On our next episode, we look at the myth of Escobar and his legacy 30 years after his death. Thank you.